0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor, and today I've got no guest, but I do have two topics for you. So today I'm going to be talking about a guy called Robert Liston, who was a famous Scottish surgeon from around the 1800s, and he was pretty famous for his skill in surgery pre-anesthesia. And after that, I'm going to tell you about a extortion crime which was led by a group or person who called themselves the monster with 21 faces uh, i don't think there's much in the way of announcements this time though i am drinking a black chili porter today called paranoid which is pretty nice actually but yeah apart from that i don't think there's much going on so we'll cut the music and be right back see you in a bit <music> and we are back so let's get started first up Robert Liston I think we're just going to jump straight in Robert Liston was a like I said at the beginning of the episode he was a pretty famous Scottish surgeon particularly in the time before anaesthesia was a thing and and this was a time when one of the key parts of successful surgery was being quick so we're going to go into a bit about him and quick surgery. But first, a bit of background. So, he was born in 1794 in Ecclesmachern, Linlithgowshire, Scotland. And yes, I'm terrible at pronouncing Scottish words. But anyway, he was the son of Margaret Ireland and a guy called Henry Liston, who was a Scottish pastor and inventor and from a quick look into Henry, he invented a kind of musical instrument, and was the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. But Henry himself, he... I couldn't really see too much on him when he was really young, but during his childhood he was taught by his father, and would enter the University of Edinburgh at the age of 14. With large success in Latin, And then at 16, he became the assistant of a Dr. John Barclay, uh, getting a lot of his medical knowledge at the time from this assisting job. And he'd become the first, quote, great northern anatomist of Blackwell's magazine. And in 1818, he would become a surgeon in the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. And he was listed as um, living at 99 George Street in the centre of Edinburgh's new town in 1832 and 1833. However, uh, he was seen as a pretty, he seemed to be a person with a pretty grating personality. And he would eventually be banned from the Royal Infirmary and move down south where he was appointed as a professor of clinical surgery at University College Hospital London in 1835. And... He went to work, he started getting a huge reputation really fast, and a fortune, and would become one of the leading surgeons of the time. Between 1840 and 1847, he would live at 5 Clifford Street off Pond Street in Mayfair, London, in a building and area which now has historical significance, which which seems to be why there's so much information about where he lived and stuff, from what I can tell anyway. And he's still studied today, from what I can tell, within the like, medical professions and related disciplines. And after he died in on the 7th of December 1847, a meeting was held of his friends and admirers who unanimously resolved to establish some public and lasting testimonial to the memory of this distinguished surgeon. And the committee was made up of 78 people who decided that... This, this this testimonial should end up being a marble statue in a designated public spot, and the inauguration of a gold medal to be called the Liston Medal, which is awarded annually as the Council of University College may decide. But yeah, that's his background anyway. But let's go into stuff that he was actually known for. He had a lot of firsts for one uh, within the medical profession, and in eighteen fifty-five, he was the uh, it was actually the first Fresno clinical surgery at University College Hospital in London. And also, uh, towards the end of his life, on the 21st of December 1846, uh, at the same hospital, he would perform the first operation in Europe under modern anesthesia. After which he commented, The Yankee Dodge beats mesmerism hollow. As the first use of ether was, uh, as anesthesia, was by doctors in the US, particularly by. Uh, a guy called William T.G. Morton, on the 16th of October, 1846, not long earlier, uh, which was at the Massachusetts General Hospital, as uh, William Morton was a dentist who was uh, experimenting with ether for the extraction of teeth. I don't think I need to let people know that it would suck to have any kind of surgery or dentistry done without anesthesia, to say the least. Yeah, the operation they did was uh, on a patient named Frederick Churchill, where he performed a above knee amputation with uh, success. And uh, <laughs> from what I've read, the uh, Frederick Churchill was um, terrified, but given a rubber tube to hold in his mouth and told to breathe through it for two to three minutes. And the patient soon became still and quiet, pretty much to the amazement to anyone watching, as this is something completely different to what they knew. And soon after he became still, Liston was ready with his knife, and took 30 seconds to remove the limb without the patient moving at all. A few minutes later, Churchill woke up and exclaimed, when are you going to begin? Which was apparently greeted with such laughter that the uh, patient shouted out, take me back, I can't have it done. One of the students that was present at this first public use of ether was a guy called James Simpson, who was 16 years old at the time and would qualify at the age of 18. Uh, becoming a professor of midwifery at Edinburgh University. And after seeing this use of ether for amputations, he started wondering whether it would help with pains for childbirth, despite the worry of uh, impacting the, the fetus. So he started experimenting with a load of chemical cocktails, and one day he got recommended a new compound by a Liverpool chemist that he tried out on himself. So he took it, and sometime later he woke up on the floor, and this was chloroform. Which would essentially make Simpson's name famous and make him a fortune. It would also have a huge impact on a guy called Joseph Lister, who was, um, well, soon after he kind of realized that, um, anesthesia was great for patients and stuff and said, no, stop bleeding, etc. but people would still die from infection. So he started to experiment and would, um, go on to start developing aseptic technique and uh, develop antisepsis tools, which has a huge impact to this day. And finally, Robert Liston also invented a few things, like he invented uh, the see-through isinglass, sticking plasters, bulldog forceps, which are used to lock arteries, and finally a leg splint used to stabilize dislocations and fractures of the femur, which is still used today. But yeah, Now that's out of the way, let's go on about why I actually wanted to talk about him. Because he has a reputation, and he was known as the best surgeon of his time, and pretty much anyone that could afford to pay for him would do it. And a British surgeon, author, and expert on Liston, a guy called uh, Richard Gordon, described Liston as, quote, "...the fastest knife in the West End, he could amputate a leg in two and a half minutes." Like I said earlier, he did that above knee amputation in 30 seconds, apparently. And he has a reputation for being able to complete operations in a matter of seconds. This, like I said, this is a time where speed was essential uh, in surgery, as it would reduce pain and improve the of survival in a patient greatly. Uh, even Florence N- Nightingale would comment on it, and in her notes on nurse- nursing she would say that there are many physical operations where, all else being equal, the danger it's in a direct ratio to the time the operation lasts, and the operator's success will be in direct ratio to his quickness. And Gordon actually described a scene of one of Listen's surgeries. So I'll just read it out. He was six foot two and operated in a bottle green coat with Wellington boots. He sprung across bloodstained boards upon his swooning, sweating, strapped down patient like a duelist, calling Time me, gentlemen, time me to students craning with pocket watches from the iron rail and galleries. Everyone swore that the first flash of his knife was followed so swiftly by the rasp of sore and bone that the sight and sound seemed simultaneous. To free both hands, he would clasp the bloody knife between his teeth. And one source I read said that, uh, Time me, gentleman, time me became a catchphrase. And it would be common for this to happen in a lot of his surgeries. In modern times, looking at it, that guy would seem nuts. But... You go this way. Yeah, I mean, an amputation while completely awake. This guy would do it in two or three minutes, whereas most other surgeons would do it between five and ten minutes. And um, this was a time where most surgeons at the time lost about one in four patients. But listen, uh, due to his skill and speed, overall in the end he would perform 66 amputations between 1835 and 1840, where only 10 died, which is a mortality rate of one in six instead of one in four. And yeah. This was a time where there wasn't really any link between surgical hygiene and infection, because it was really poorly understood at the time. Like, For example, there was a guy called uh, Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes at the Boston Society for Medical Improvement on on the 13th of February, 1843. Uh, He put forward some suggestions for hygiene improvement to reduce obstetric infections and mortality from puerperal fever, which... Outraged obstetricians, particularly in Philadelphia, as in those days, to quote, Surgeons operated in blood-stiffened frock coats. The stiffer the coat, the prouder the busy surgeon. And pus was as inseparable from surgery as blood. And cleanliness was next to prudishness. Sir Frederick Treves uh, also had quotes about this, like, There was no object in being clean. Indeed, cleanliness was out of place. It was considered to be finicking and affected. An executioner might as well manicure his nails before chopping off a head. And the connection between surgical hygiene, infection, and uh, maternal mortality rates at Vienna General Hospital would only be made in 1847, a good four years later, after the Vienna physician Dr. Ignaz Philipp Semmelweis from Hungary had a close colleague die, after which he started instituting hygiene practices which uh, Holmes put forward, and the mortality rate fell. Uh, Liston was actually pretty known for his cleanliness as well. Like, with lower limb amputations, he would go into the room for removing his frock coat, putting on a clean apron, and washing his hands. He would then um, get some medical students together, one to hold the limb that was going to be removed, and another two to hold the patient down. A handkerchief was then placed in the patient's mouth, and a good leg would be tied down to the table to prevent it getting in the way of Liston's knife and Listen would um, take about 30 seconds to cut through the flesh, saw off the bone, and insert a few sutures. But despite his reported abrasive uh, personality, but in a lot of writings about him, he's generally portrayed as a guy of strong character and ethics, which is said to be the source of part of his confrontation uh, He was known for at one point confronting a medical colleague called Dr. Robert Knox over a treatment of Mary Patterson, who it would later transpire was murdered in the Birkin Hare Murders with Knox thought to be complicit in the murders. As she was in Knox's dissecting rooms within four hours of her death and kept in whiskey for three months before dissection, during which time she was essentially on display. And Liston's response is is documented in one of the letters. Um, And according to Liston, he saw Mary Patterson's body in Knox's rooms and immediately suspected foul play. He knocked Knox down after an altercation in front of his students. Liston assumed some students had slept with her when she was alive, and that they should dissect her body offended his sense of decency. He removed her body for burial. And then just to wrap up this section, like go back to Richard Gordon, in his book about Liston, he um, actually made descriptions of his most famous cases, and quite conveniently, ranked them from first to fourth most famous. So, let's go through them. <laughs> The fourth most famous case... Which was removal in four minutes of a 45 pound scrotal tumour whose owner had to carry it around in a wheelbarrow. Third most famous case. Argument with his house surgeon was the red pulsating tumour in a small boy's neck, a straightforward abscess of the skin, or a dangerous aneurysm of the carotid artery. Pooh, Liston exclaimed impatiently. Who ever heard of an aneurysm in one so young? Flashing a knife from his waistcoat pocket, he lanced it. Houseman's note. Outlept arterial blood, and the boy fell. The patient died, but the artery lives. In the University College Hospital Pathology Museum. Specimen number 1256. Second most famous case. Amputated a leg in two and a half minutes, but in his enthusiasm, the patient's testicles as well. And his most famous case. Amputated a leg in under two and a half minutes. The patient died afterwards in the ward from hospital gangrene. They usually did in those pre-Listerian days. He amputated in addition the fingers of his young assistant who died afterwards in the ward from hospital gangrene. He also slashed through the coattails of a distinguished surgical spectator who was so terrified that a knife had pierced his vitals. He dropped dead from fright. That was the only operation in history with a 300% mortality. But anyway, that's um actually all I've got for him. But yeah, he was, quite frankly, a pretty amazing surgeon for the time, despite his um, more famous cases sometimes. I just thought it was um, quite interesting and something a bit different to normal. But on that, we'll cut to music and come back with the Monster with 21 Faces. We are back. So, let's talk about the Monster with 21 Faces. Though its um, official name is actually the Glico Morinaga case, or its official designation Metropolitan Designated Case 114, and it was a famous extortion case from the 1980s in Japan, directed mostly at industrial confection uh, businesses, and it remains unsolved to this day. So, yeah, the case lasted 17 months. From the start to the end, and began in 1984 when the series of criminal incidents uh, started occurring, with Ezeki Glicko being the first of the victims. And Ezeki Glicko is a company which I didn't think I knew before, but I got halfway through and I was like, and then I realized I actually know this company. They're known for making uh, various confections, and their most famous ones, like at least in the West, would uh, they're known for making pocky or Mikado, and also pretz, which is like those uh, long thin stick-like biscuits which have a chocolate covering, and they're pretty well known. Like their total sales from 1966 exceeded 10 billion packages, and it kind of says a lot that they're still around after this happened, and you kind of see why in a bit. So yeah, it. The first incident happened on the 18th of March, 1984, with the CEO of, of Ezaki Glico being targeted. The guy's name being Katsuhisa Ezeki, who was the president and CEO. And it began with two men forcing their way into the neighboring home of his mother, binding her and taking the key to Katsuhisa Ezeki's house. And at 9 p.m., Two masked men, wearing caps and armed with a pistol and rifle, broke into the home of Katsuyasu Ezeke, using the key to enter the main house. They then tied up his wife and daughter, and, believing the men were ordinary robbers, Ezeki's wife uh, attempted to negotiate with them for their freedom in exchange for money, but was rejected. The two men then cut the telephone lines and stormed into the bathroom, where Ezeke and his other two children were hiding. He panicked and cried for help, but was threatened that he would be killed unless he calmed down following which he was abducted and taken to a warehouse where he was held captive. The next morning, they would call the director of the company in Takatsuki City and issued a ransom demand for 1 billion yen, which at the time was about 4.2 million US dollars, which, if I did math right, is about 10.2 million dollars in 2018, or 7.8 million pounds, assuming I did maths right, I was. And additionally a hundred kilos in gold bullion. However, three days later, on the 21st of March, Ezeki managed to escape from the warehouse which was in Ibaraki City in the Osaka Prefecture. However, this didn't stop any extortion attempts against Glico, and since after this kidnapping failed, a bit later on April the 10th, three cars in the parking lot of Ezeki Glico's trial production facility burst into flames and a lot of the surroundings was damaged. And six days later, police in the Ibraki Prefecture discovered a threatening note taped to a jug of hydrochloric acid. Soon after, on May the 10th, Glicoizaki began receiving letters from a person or group calling itself Aijin Nijiuichi Menso, or The Monster with 21 Faces, which was named after the villain of Edogawa Rampo's detective novels. It's also been translated as the Phantom of 21 Faces or the Mystery Man with 21 Faces. They claim to have leased Glico candies with potassium cyanide soda, which led to Glico pulling its products off the shelves at large expense. It actually cost them more than $21 million at the time, and they had to lay off 450 part-time workers. The company's stocks also took a large hit on the stock exchange, and panic uh, spread across the Japanese public. Apparently this led to candy sales plummeting across Japan, particularly in the area though. Soon after, the Monster with 21 Faces threatened to place the tampered products in stores, following which a man wearing a, a Yomiuri giant's baseball cap was caught placing Glico chocolate on a store shelf by a security camera. And this photo was made public after the incident, though nothing really came of it. While this was going on, the monster with 21 faces sent letters to the media, taunting police efforts to capture the culprits behind the scare. An excerpt from one letter was written in hiragana with an Osaka dialect, uh, which read, Dear dumb police officers, don't tell a lie. All crimes begin with a lie, as we say in Japan. Don't you know that? And another written challenge was sent to the Koshin police station, saying, Why don't you keep it to yourself? You seem to be at a loss, so why not let us help you? We'll give you a clue. We entered the factory by the front gate. The typewriter we used is Panwriter. The plastic container used was a piece of street garbage signed Monster with 21 Faces. A well while after, they stopped contacting Glico Azaki, and on June 26th, they sent a letter out saying, We forgive Glico. As afterwards, they turned their campaign of extortion on another company called Morinaga and other food companies like Maradour Ham and House Food Corporation. And it's been pointed out that in regard to this particular incident, there was no evidence of any money being transferred from one party to another. However, it's the price of Glico stocks fell pretty high, and and when the incident was uh, officially closed by police, the stock prices shot up again. And even though no money was taken from them, it's been stated that if a person or party with ample funds were to have advanced information about this incident, they would be in a position to legally and safely get a great deal of money. Now, on the 28th of June, the police got close to a suspected mastermind of the Monster 21 faces, as this was two days after they agreed to stop harassing Maradai in exchange for 50 million yen, or about $511,000 in 2018, or about or about £392,000 in 2018. And they arranged for a Maradai employee to toss the ransom money from a local train heading towards Kyoto when a white flag was displayed. And the guy with the money was actually an investigator disguised as a Marudai employee and following the drop instructions of the monster. And when he was on there, he spotted a suspicious man observing him when he was riding the train to the drop point. And he was described as large and well-built and wearing sunglasses, his hair cut short and permed with, to quote, eyes like those of a fox. And a lot of the online things call him the fox-eyed man. So that's why I'm going to call as well. The white flag was not displayed, and the undercover policeman and the fox eyed man both left the train at Kyoto Station. And while the investigator waited on the bench, the fox eyed man continued to observe him. The investigator then headed back to Osaka soon after, and the fox eyed man boarded another car in the same train. And when the investigator uh, left the train at, at Takatsuki Station, the fox eyed man boarded another Kyoto bound train and another in- undercover investigator tailed him from Kyoto. However, they lost him uh, soon after. Uh, anyway, going forward a bit to October 1984, a letter addressed to Moms of the Nation, which was signed by the Monster with 21 Faces, and sent to Osaka news agencies, uh, with a warning similar to those sent to Glico, saying that 20 packages of Moronaga candy had been laced with sodium cyanide which is quite deadly, and after seeing the letter, police would search stores in cities from Tokyo to Western Japan, finding over a dozen lethal packages of Moronaga cho- Choco Balls and Angel Pie before anyone was poisoned. They were easy enough to find as the packages had labels such as Danger Contains Toxins put on them, and these cyanide-laced candies and chocolates uh, turned up on j- store shelves in places like Osaka, Tokyo, Kyoto. Yogo and, and, and Ichi prefectures, with the firms receiving extortion demands of hundreds of millions in yen. Though it's believed that the firms never paid. The labels tell me that that were went out to actually kill anyone. However, kids don't read labels, so this could have turned deadly pretty fast. Of course, that's my own view on it. Anyway, moving up to the 14th of November, the police actually got a second chance at the fox-eyed man when the Monster of 21 Faces attempted to rob the House Food Corporation of 100 million yen in another secret deal, and drop was to happen at a rest stop on the Meishan Expressway, near Otsu. And investigators saw the fox-eyed man wearing a golf cap and dark glasses, but he ev- evaded capture again, and the cash del- delivery van that they were tailing continued to head towards the drop point, where they were to drop the money in a can under a white piece of cloth. When the delivery van reached drop point, the white cloth was there, but the can was missing, and as a result, the investigative team was ordered to withdraw, as it was believed that the drop was to evaluate the police response of the monster threats. However, an hour earlier, a patrol car from a local uh, Shiga Prefecture policeman had spotted a station wagon with its engine running and its headlines, which was also sitting less than 50 metres from a white cloth suspended from a fence. And unaware of the secret ransom drop, the police officer drove up to the station wagon and shone his flashlight on the driver, who was described as a thin-cheeked man in his 40s, wearing a golf cap over his eyes and, more telling, a wireless receiver with headphones. Surprised by the policeman, the driver sped off with the police car following in pursuit until the station wagon lost him. This station wagon was was later found abandoned near the Kusatsu station and was discovered to have been stolen earlier in Nagakakyo in, in Kyoto Prefecture. And inside the abandoned car was a radio transceiver that had been eavesdropping on the radio communications between the police officers of six prefectures, including Osaka, Kyoto, and Kobe, which were the prefectures of the drop point. They also recovered a vacuum cleaner, though no evidence could be traced back to the monster group. Following this campaign of blackmail against House Foods, it intended their sights on Fujiya in December of 1984, going on to blackmail them. January 1985 came around and, and the police re- released a facial composite of the fox-eyed man to the public. A month later, more tampered sweets were found in February 1985, which would be the last time they found them, but it would make a total of 21 lethal sweet po- products found. Essentially making it up to a sick joke, with 21 lethal sweets to 21 faces. And the case took a tragic turn in August 1985, after continued harassment by the Monster 21 faces across Japan, and the police were feeling pressure from failing to capture the Fox Eyed Man, or anyone within the group, and the Shiga Prefecture Police Superintendent, Shoji Yamamoto, who was aged 59 at the time, would kill himself by self-immolation as he doused his body in kerosene and set himself alight light in the backyard of his official residence on Wednesday afternoon. And the police would go on to say that just hours before, Yamamoto had been relieved of his post and assigned to the National Police Agency, with his associates saying that he had been embarrassed by an error made by his subordinates in failing to arrest suspects involved in the drama the previous Orton, when he apologised to the public after officers under his command let the fox-eyed man slip away. Five days after the death of Yamamoto, on August the 12th, the monster with 21 faces would send its last message to the media, which read as follows. Yamamoto of Shiga Prefecture Police died. How stupid of him. We've got no friends or secret hiding place in Shiga. It's Yoshino or Shikato who should have died. What have they been doing for as long as one year and five months? Don't let bad guys like us get away with it. There are many more fools who want to copy us. No career Yamamoto died like a man, so we decided to give our condolence. We decided to forget about torturing food-making companies. If anyone blackmails any of the food-making companies, it's not us but someone copying us. We are bad guys. That means we've got more to do other than bullying companies. It's fun to lead a bad man's life. Monster with 21 Faces after this message, the Monster of 21 Faces was never heard of again. And in June 1995, the statute of limitations ran out on the assault and kidnapping of ezeki And in February 2000, the statute of limitations ran out for the attempted murder for the poisoned food products. There were actually a couple prime suspects, as the Tokyo Metropolitan Police suspected that various Yakuza groups had a hand in the case as the end of the blackmail campaign occurred around the time of the Yamaichi War, which was a mob war between the Yamaguchi Gumi and the Ichiwakai, and um, the Japanese National Public Safety Commission also investigated extreme left and right-wing groups as possible suspects. There was also one guy in particular that came up a fair bit, as uh, following the release of the identity in January 1985, yeah, where they released the Composite, uh, the Tokyo Metropolitan Police identified the culprit as a guy called Manobu Miyazaki, who was labelled as Mr. M or Material Witness M, with quite high similarities in appearance. And Miyazaki was also suspected of issuing a 1976 tape declaring support of a local union in a labor dispute with Glico, which had similarities with of the declarations of the Monster Twenty One Faces. There were also multiple whistleblowing incidents between 1975 and 1976 that were attributed to Miyazaki, Uh, highlighted things like Glico's dumping of starches and other industrial waste into a local river and drainage system. And he was also suspected of being involved with the resignation of a union leader over accounting irregularities when Glico Ham and Glico Nutritional Foods merged. And in addition to this, his father was the boss of a local Yakuza group, and Miyazaki himself was said to have some Yakuza connections. However, the, um... And this speculation actually go for months that Miyazaki was the fox-eyed man until the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Force would check his alibis and clear him of any wrongdoings. This notoriety essentially caused, caused Miyazaki to become a social commenter, uh, and he actually wrote a book about his experiences called uh, Topumono, uh, which was an autobiography. This book sold 600,000 copies And has since been translated into English. And there's interviews with the guy as well. I'm just going to read out one of the the questions that I found from one of them. Uh, On the Glico-Moringa case, which you mentioned, is that your picture on on the book or not? It is a police sketch of the criminal who was involved in the case. The statute of limitations is now expired, so please don't hold back. To which he answered, this is actually a montage sketch which was released by the police when they were trying to find the criminal for the case. When my mother, who was alive at the time, saw it, her first reaction was, "Manabu, what did you do?" Later, though, she said, "You're much more handsome than that." Also, in respect to another point that you made, which was that a man wearing a baseball cap went into a supermarket and was photographed, it was said that the person resembled myself. That is simply not true. The reason is that I am a great fan of Hanshin Tigers and gentlemen wearing a giant baseball cap. Regardless of what happens in my life, I will never be caught wearing a giant's cap. And we'll just and just to wrap up. In the like 30 years after the case went on, like this is from an article that I found in which is from twenty fourteen. Like no new leads came to light. However, just like the letter said, there have been a bunch of imitators since, with a total of five hundred and twenty-five cases of extortion attempts against food producers, of which three hundred and twenty-two have been solved, with a recent case being from twenty thirteen with a man identifying himself as Phantom No. 28 tried to extort 50 million yen from Ezeke Glico, among other manufacturers. So that company has been having to put all this shit for over 30 years now. But the suspect was captured and was regarded as a copycat of the original monster with 21 faces. As for the original group, they're free and clear of anything as the statue of limitations has run out for any of their crimes. Across this case, about 1.3 million officers were mobilised to work on it. About twenty-eight thousand three hundred tips were provided to police from the public, and the police conducted hearings on about one hundred twenty-five thousand individuals. And it's become a pretty enduring mystery to this day, even leaking into culture and stuff. Like in one of our early episodes, uh, we talked about posthumanism. We talked about Ghost in the Shell, and and this uh, it's been linked a lot to inspiring the like one of the main villains from. The anime goes in the shell, and that's just one example of where it's of where it's leached in. But at this point it's the case that if it is solved, no one's going to jail for it. So it would be solved for knowledge alone. And on that, I think we can call it there. So we'll cut to music and come back with an outro. See you in a sec. And we are back. So, hope you enjoyed those stories. I thought the Monster With Twenty One f- Faces case was particularly interesting. I hope you did too. Let me know your thoughts on it, because I think it's one that I'd still like to I think it's one that I'd like to hear what people think about. it. And yeah, so that's uh double whammy of episodes of The Monster with Twenty One Faces and The Surgeon Robert Liston. And it's not too much for our part on, so we'll just we'll just do the usual plugs. So I'm going to plug the Murderly Network as usual. That's murderly. You can find a bunch of other cool podcasts over there. Um, oh, one thing I did, one thing I didn't mention uh, at the beginning was uh, last Monday I went to a talk on serial killers, uh, which was done by Paul Harrison, and I actually got to meet him afterwards, and I was and I'm still super excited for it. And it's a guy that's interviewed about seventy plus serial killers. And he's a really fascinating person. If you see a talk by him near you, you should probably go check it out, because I was pretty blown away. Yeah, so talks to people like Charles Manson, um, Ted Bundy, Rosemary West, etc., etc., etc. That was a big list. And he's also got a bunch of books out, so you can probably go check it out. And now under my personal plugs. So, social media, you can check me out at facebook.com slash blood on the rocks. Twitter and Instagram at the bloody rocks you can email me tell me about whatever on at botrpodcast at gmail.com so if you want if you have opinions if you uh, just want to say hi if you know someone that might have something interesting to talk about or ask someone that has those qualities send me a message and we'll have a chat oh we've also got discord which I'll put in the um, description and occasionally post on social media and stuff as well Uh, so you can come hang out there oh and we also have a patreon at patreon.com slash blood on the rocks if you want to support the show and yeah i think that's everything so thank you for listening rate review subscribe don't forget to tell your friends and have a great week i'll see you soon